views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Welcome to Everyday Wealth. Okay, so who is excited? Besides my husband, I mean, that Succession is back for a fourth and final season. This HBO show has been a juggernaut, 48 Emmy nominations, 13 Emmy. Emmy wins. And for those of you who haven't tuned in, no spoilers, no spoilers from me, because I want you to be able to start at the beginning of season one and go all the way through enjoying all of the surprises. But it is basically the story of a family, a lot like the Murdochs. Anyway, this family in succession is the Roy family with patriarch Logan Roy at the helm. He is a billionaire in declining health who rules his family and his business with a cold iron fist. And he's got four dysfunctional children. There is Kendall, who is the second oldest, and he's the one everyone initially expected to replace his father in the business. Roman, the youngest, who typically acts like it. Shiv, Siobhan, the only daughter. She is a natural leader, and she's married to Tom, who has a storyline of his own. And Connor, the oldest, who really wants nothing to do with the rest of them. And the family owns controlling shares of a company called Waystar Royco, which is a media conglomerate, as I said, Murdoch's, presumably once owned privately by Logan Roy, and now it's a publicly traded company. So while this is, yes, fictional and filled with over-the-top drama, what the series does is focus on a very real problem that many people face, and that's what happens to your wealth when you retire or when you die. It's not just the money. The show deals with questions like, what's your legacy and how will you be remembered by the people that you love? And what's the impact that you had on the world around you? And what was the meaning or or the purpose of your life? Big Big questions, maybe some of the most important that you will ever ask yourself. We are going to run with this theme for the rest of the show and really talk about why it's essential for you to have plans in place to pass on your wealth and your legacy to the next generation, because there is a lot of money at stake. The consulting firm Cerulli Associates ballparks that over the next quarter century, roughly 45 million U.S. households will collectively hand down 68 
trillion dollars to their heirs. It's the largest redistribution of wealth in human history. And unfortunately, there is a pretty good chance that some of these heirs, maybe many of these heirs are going to blow it. 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the next generation. 90 percent lose it the generation after that. And although people are concerned about this, data from UBS shows only 40% said that they've had discussions with their heirs regarding their wishes. But we're not going to let you be those people. Today, we are going to help you get the kind of difficult conversations that legacy planning involves started. Isabel Barrow is in the house. Isabel is one of the fantastic, experienced financial planners at Edelman Financial Engines. She is often my co-pilot in this podcast. So, Isabel, always nice to see you. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back, Jean. Nice to see you, too. Are you watching? (laughs) I was embarrassingly thinking that I really should probably get on the bandwagon here with the, with the succession. I mean, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I mean, I've heard so much about this show. Maybe I should get on board. Well, if you need a tutorial, I, I'm not your girl. I sort of dip in and out for the fashion. And for Tom, who, although he is wearing a completely different character here, actually played Mr. Darcy in one of my favorite versions of Pride and Prejudice. Um, That I can get on board with. (laughs) Yes, he he looked a lot better then. But I I dig in occasionally for Shiv's fashion, unlike my husband who hangs on every word. But let's talk about the topic that really applies to everyone listening. This big topic, for lack of a better word, this big world of wealth transferring and estate planning. Is there a best way to pass along an inheritance? Well, there's really no one right answer to that question. Um, Because I think there are so many complexities to a family. You know, is it a second marriage? Do you have multiple children? You know, what are your goals? And so I think that, again, your decisions around estate planning, your decisions around your inheritance, they're really, really personal to you, but not only to what your goals are and what you want, but what you can actually afford and what you can actually make happen. And I think it really starts with a couple of key things that you need to decide. And maybe just even clarify for yourself and then for your family. But the first is, what do you have that you want to be giving, right? Is Mm -hmm. it money? Is it real estate? Is it collectibles? Is it other material possessions, you know? And then the next thing you need to start (laughs) kind of figuring out is who are you going to give it to, right? So is it for your children? Is it for your grandchildren? Is it for charitable organizations? Is it for friends and other family members? You know, that really plays a role in what's the best way to kind of plan this, map this out, is to have a really clear understanding of who you want this money to go to. And then finally, when you're going to be giving it, right? Do you want to pass on an inheritance um, or maybe a gift while you're still living, or after your death. You know, this may impact how you save, how you take retirement distributions, and a lot of those kind of complexities around your own investments going forward. Can we talk about that last strategy a little bit, this idea of giving your 
legacy away while you're alive. I, I think about this all the time because I am 58 years old. My son and daughter are roughly 28 and 26. But by the time I die, hopefully, you know, they could be in their late 50s, early 60s. I hope they don't really need the money by then. But boy, when it comes to things like buying a house or putting their own kids that they will hopefully have someday through college, they could probably use it a lot sooner. Absolutely. And I think that this concept of instead of leaving money behind as an inheritance, maybe gifting money out or giving your inheritance early to your family members is becoming more and more popular, at least among clients that I talk to. People are interested in gifting money to their children or their grandchildren while they're alive. And then and when they can actually see the fruits of their labor and see their children and grandchildren benefiting from that. And to your point, you know, when they're young and when they're in the phase of life where they're just getting married and starting their own families or buying a house, you know, that's maybe more when they actually have a greater need for the money than when they're older and and more established. But the key here is if you're planning on gifting while you're still alive, you need to consider your own income needs, your own financial plan first. So it has to work within the scope of your financial plan and not just because it's a goal, say, I'm going to accelerate my gifting now. Because, you know, ultimately, you've got to factor in other things that may impact your financial plan over the rest of your life that you're not maybe thinking about so much today. And you're thinking just, hey, my kids could use this $50,000 for buying a new house. But have you considered how inflation could erode your purchasing power going forward? What about you know, your healthcare costs in the future. They may be low now, but they're going up um, and they mm-hmm. will likely continue to go up. What about taxes? We have taxes that are very likely going to be going up in the future. And so how is that going to impact your future financial planning? So you've really got to consider a lot of other factors before making that decision to make gifts to any inheritors. I think the Achilles heel of gifting is that the recipients can come to depend on it. And I have somebody in my life, a friend whose parents did gift for a long time. And they just figured these gifts, these annual gifts would keep on coming. And then the financial crisis hit in 2008. And the parents were like, whoa, we may need this money. And it just stopped. And it was a big shock to how they were living. How do you decide when it's okay to start? And how do you telegraph your intentions? Well, I think, you know, again, this goes back to sort of the core concepts of financial planning. You know, if you have a well thought out, a well laid out financial plan, you should have a good understanding of what your risks are that pertain to you. And if you know, and you sat down with your financial planner and and you've said, I would like to do X, Y, Z in terms of gifting. Yeah, I think to your point, you've got to figure it in. You've got to calculate it in for the foreseeable future. You know, if you tell someone, hey, your grandchild child number one, I'm going to pay for your college. And hey, grandchild two, guess what? I don't have any money left for you. That could create some strife down the road. So I think that ultimately, you know, you really have to kind of have that conceptually built into your financial plan. So know whether or not that's one of your goals. And if it is, that's okay. But it may mean sacrifices elsewhere. If to your point, you know, the financial crisis comes along and your investments are worth a lot less, 
you know, are you still going to be able to continue that? And if you're not going to be able to continue that, then maybe start more slowly and work your way up to the ultimate gifts that you want to leave. We got an email from a a listener about gifting, and we're going to go into that in just a sec. But if you've got a question for one of our financial planners, just go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the middle of the page. You'll find a light blue box. Click the button. It says, ask a question and fill in your information and, and send it my way. We could read yours in the next podcast. That's what this listener did. So the listener writes, excuse my ignorance here, but I don't quite understand gifting. As of 2023, you can gift another individual $17,000 without paying taxes, and anything more than that you have to report. How does that benefit you? For example, if I want to give my son $5,000, why would I bother to write a gift letter? What am I missing, Isabel? Well, so this is such a commonly misunderstood situation, right? I think that we all have um, this idea that we're limited to gifts that we can give for one reason or another, or that $17,000 limit means we can't give more than that. But ultimately, the listener is right. You know, you don't need to report a gift as long as it's below the annual exclusion amount for the year in which you give the gift. So $17,000 for this year. And so in her example, no, she doesn't need to report the gift or write a letter or whatever she needs to do. I mean, she can give the gift and that's that. Nobody pays any tax on it. But here's the confusing part. If you do go over that exclusion amount, you have to be careful. So if you want to give a gift of $20,000, let's say, instead of seventeen, dollars now you have to file a federal gift tax return to report that extra $3,000. Now, that gift tax return is not something that you do like right away upon giving of the gift like you do a letter, but rather it's just an extra part of your tax return that you're going to file at your regular tax time on April 15th of the year following the year the gift was made. You just need to file your regular taxes and then include the gift tax return as well. But ultimately, as long as your lifetime gifts, so in this case, in my example, you're giving $20,000 in a year where the exclusion is 17, you're you're $3,000 over the limit. So you're filing this gift tax return to report the $3,000. That's going to go toward your lifetime gift limit. And as long as that lifetime gift stays under the exclusion amount, which this year is just under $13 million, you're actually not going to pay any gift tax, nor is the person to whom you're giving it. You don't pay any gift tax at all. It's reportable and it is reported on that gift tax filing, but it's not taxable as long as it's under that limit over your lifetime. You just have to remember to file the gift. Beyond this giving of one-off gifts, I know that there is a whole bounty of research that has found that inheritances in general can really tear families apart. The Williams Group did a study and they found that almost 70% of families lose a portion of their inheritance because of some kind of fighting over the estate that they are inheriting. Do you hear about this often? I hear stories about this all the time, unfortunately. And I'm, I've had one of these situations in my own family as well, unfortunately. And it's something that I think most clients are nervous about, right? Of not wanting to create that, you know, in their lives or in their, the lives of their beneficiaries. And most of this financial loss, most of the stress, most of that emotional pain could simply be avoided by having 
a conversation, right? Have that conversation early and often. What are we talking about exactly when we're having this conversation? I mean, how much detail do you need to give in order to avoid the fights down the road? Well, when it comes to, let's say, financial assets, you need to figure out first, are you going to give your heirs an equal distribution of your money or are you going to do it based on need? You know, maybe you have one child that's very successful and one child that's not so much. You know, you may have a goal of helping the the second child more than the first child, or are you going to make it even Steven? You know, either way, you need to discuss that with them ahead of time, right? You don't want the child that's very successful to feel burned by the fact that their success means that they didn't get an equal share of their inheritance. And so if that is your goal, you need to talk to them about it ahead of time. Uh, Make sure that they understand your reasoning and that they're not going to be surprised when you're gone because that could just create then stress and anxiety between the two children, right? So I think that having a financial planner play a role in this case can really help to make those conversations easier. You know, bring in that disinterested third party and let's have the entire family sit around the table and kind of talk it through and at least explain your rationale and make it really clear that everyone is on the same page. When you're giving away certain assets, stocks or funds or real estate, the tax scenarios can get very complicated very quickly. Is there a best way to think about that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Taxes are always complicated, but even more so when um, now we're talking about gifting and inheritance, et cetera. So some assets like stocks and mutual funds and real estate, they are eligible for a favorable tax treatment that's called a step up in cost basis. And so what happens is that can actually help save your heirs a significant amount of money on taxes if they receive that stepped up cost basis. So how that works is when an individual inherits an asset, the cost basis of those assets are now adjusted to the fair market value at the date of death of the person who's giving, who's leaving the inheritance. So that means, you know, let's say an individual inherits a stock, for example, and then immediately turns around and sells the shares. There may not be any capital gain um, due at all, even though, you know, the person who, who they inherited it from bought them at a very low cost basis. So um, that step up in cost basis saved everybody on capital gains. But remember that the step up in cost basis doesn't apply if you give it or get it as a gift and not as an inheritance. So if somebody in their lifetime gives you a gift of low basis stock shares while they're still alive, your cost basis is whatever theirs was. So technically it's called a a basis adjustment rule. So it's always possible your heirs could also inherit an asset with a cost basis lower than the fair market value, but it's not typical. So it is important to work with a tax professional to help determine the ins and outs of this, especially if you have complicated assets like businesses or or partnerships, partnership interests, et cetera. Isabel, this is such important, great advice. If I have to have these conversations with my children, I'm going to bring you in as my disinterested third party. I just like the idea of having you in the room. Thanks for doing that. I think this is a good spot for us to take
take a quick break. When we come back, Isabel and I will be joined by Aaron Smith. Aaron is the Director of Estate Planning at Edelman Financial Engines, and we're going to walk you through how to create your own estate plan, what you need in it, and some important considerations. Stick around. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. I've been talking with financial planner Isabel Barrow about how to avoid some pitfalls when it comes to passing along an inheritance. Now we are pleased to welcome Erin Smith. She is the Director of Estate Planning at Edelman Financial Engines and has two decades of experience. Um, She's also a lawyer admitted to the bars of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I am delighted to join you. Thank you, Jean. Of course. So I I ran across a very alarming statistic on caring.com. They did a a will survey just this year, and they found two out of three people do not have any type of estate planning document. That's just unconscionable, I think, particularly when we are talking about parents of young children. But I'll take a step back and stop being judgmental and just ask you, who should have an estate plan? So we believe that everyone needs an estate plan. It doesn't matter your marital status. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your net worth. Everyone needs an estate plan. And what goes into an estate plan? What are the specific documents that people need? So every estate plan consists of at least three documents. Um, Some of these documents are effective when you're alive but incapacitated, and others become effective upon your passing. Um, So the first of these documents is a durable power of attorney. So the durable power of attorney, this is a document where you are nominating someone to make financial and other healthcare decisions on your behalf. The second document is uh, a medical power of attorney, or this is sometimes called an advanced director for healthcare, or it's sometimes called a healthcare proxy. But this is the document where you're naming someone to make healthcare decisions for you if you're not able to. And they don't have to be the same people, right? They don't have to be the same people. It can be more than one person, but it's really important to be naming somebody, Because if something happens to you and you become incapacitated, there is no one, including a spouse, who can make non-healthcare decisions on your behalf. And then if something happens to you and you're not able to make healthcare decisions for yourself, that gets messy too. So those documents are really important. And then the third document of an estate plan, this is your last will and testament. And your last will and testament does two really important things. 
The first thing it's going to do is it's going, you're able to nominate a guardian for your minor child. So if both parents pass away, you get to state who's going to be in charge of raising your child. The second thing that a last will and testament does is that you're able to name an executor. And the executor is the person who's in charge of settling out the estate. So this is a person who's in charge of gathering all your assets, making sure any bills are paid. Maybe they need to sell real estate, get that final income tax return filed. And then the third thing that a last will and testament does is it sets forth your wealth transfer plan. And that's just a fancy way of saying who gets what when you're gone. And whether that be money or that be things, but you're able to state who gets what when you're gone. Where do living trusts, and for that matter, living wills, where do they fit into estate planning? So a living will is part of your lifetime incapacitation planning. So a living will is a document where you are able to set forth your end-of-life wishes if you have any specific wishes. So some people say, you know, I'd like maximum pain relief possible, even if that shortens my life expectancy. Other people will say, I want to be fighting to the end. So keep the antibiotics coming, um, keep the resuscitations coming, keep that artificial nutrition coming, or there's something in the middle. But with the living will, you're able to state your wishes. And so that if anything bad happens to you and you're not able to communicate your wishes, that your family isn't having to guess about what you would want because you've written it down. A living trust is different, though. A living trust is different. So a living trust is a fourth estate planning document that some people incorporate as part of their estate plan. And a living trust, which is also called a revocable trust or a revocable trust, depending on your accent, um, I use the term living trust, but a living trust is simply a will substitute. So for individuals who incorporate a living trust as part of their estate plan, they still have a last will and testament. And their last will and testament says, anything I own at the time of my death, I leave to my living trust. And then it's a living trust that sets forth the wealth transfer plan. But the reason that people might incorporate a living trust is that it can add a layer of efficiency at an individual's passing. So for individuals who incorporate a living trust as part of their estate plan, at their passing, their fiduciary, which is essentially their executor, it's called a successor trustee, but it's the same thing, that individual has almost near immediate access to cash. So there's access to cash to do things like pay the funeral expenses, pay for the memorial luncheon, keep the lights on in the house. If there are relatively young children, say kids in college, there's a mechanism to make the tuition payments, make the rent payments, continue the allowance. Because for individuals who don't incorporate a living trust as part of their estate plan, their executor doesn't have access to cash until the will has been probated. And in many parts of the country, probate isn't a huge deal. It's just the validation of a last will and testament. So it's a process of the executor going down to the courthouse with the death certificate and with the will, handing that over, filling out some paperwork, and then getting back a piece of paper saying that they are formally the executor. Most of the time, it's not a huge deal, but it can take some time. So in a best case scenario, it's a couple of weeks. If it's a very busy courthouse, it could be a couple of months. And in that period of time, there's no access to cash. The executor doesn't have access to cash. 
Isabel, I'm just curious, are you using living trusts with your clients a lot for these very reasons that Aaron's mentioning? Absolutely. You know, I think that for many people, the idea of having a trust is one that they're not familiar with because they think it's only for people that have super high net worth or have, you know, really complicated situations. And the reality is, is that for most people, a living trust is it's just a piece of paper until you pass away. So while you're alive, you know, it can be rewritten. It can be very flexible. You can add amendments, you know, you can make changes. But what it will do is it will just make really clear and really easy for your heirs and beneficiaries a transition of your assets when you're gone. And that's, you know, the ultimate goal is to, you know, be able to leave assets behind in a way that's that's easy and clean cut and straightforward and everybody's on the same page and knows what's happening. And a trust can do all of those things for you. Are there any other pieces, Erin, that we need to talk about that go into the estate plan itself? Absolutely. So what is a really important thing to know is that there are certain assets that aren't governed by a last will and testament and aren't governed by a living trust. And these are any assets that are titled as a joint tenants with a right of survivorship. In an instance where, you know, for example, husband and wife, they might own a house titled as joint tenants with right of survivorship. Husband and wife are both alive on Monday. Husband passes away on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the wife becomes owner of that property simply by operation of law, just because of the way it's titled. So it doesn't matter what the will might say or what the trust might say. The other assets that aren't governed by a last will and testament or a living trust are any assets that have a beneficiary designation. So 401ks, IRAs, life insurance, um, payable and death provisions on checking accounts or, or transfer on death provisions on investment accounts. Those are the functional equivalent of beneficiary designations. And beneficiary designations will always trump anything that the will or the living trust provides. So be sure that those beneficiary designations coordinate with your overall estate plan. Because beneficiary designations have um, the potential to derail a very beautiful estate plan simply because they're not governed by the trust. Yeah, if you had a big life insurance policy that you set up when you were married to your first spouse and you never changed the beneficiary and you died, then your ex could inherit a boatload of money and completely, as you said, derail the picture. So so I get it. When we look at the whole plan itself. How do you recommend going about getting these documents and and setting up a plan? And how often do we have to revise it? So when it comes to estate planning, we believe that everyone should really be engaging with an attorney to draft their estate planning documents. Um, And when it comes to updating an estate plan, you know, everyone wants to take a look at their estate plan whenever there is a big life event. If there's a birth, whether it's kids, whether it's additional children, if it's grandchildren, retirements, if someone, you know, unfortunately passes away, if you move from one state to another, these are all major life events that can trigger a review of the estate plan. So you just want to make sure that you're taking a look at your plan and that in light of those major life events, that your estate plan is still working for you. And even if you don't have any major life events, you know, take a look at your estate plan, you know, every three years, every five years, 
you know, pick your anniversary year that ends in a zero or a five and remember that that's going to be the year that you take a look at your estate plan. Because with an estate plan, you're going to create the plan that works best for you in year one. You know, and and as you get into year five and year seven and year 10, your family changes, your net worth changes. And so you want to make sure that the estate plan that you created in year one still works for you in year seven or year 10. And if it doesn't, that can be a reason to go back to your attorney and, and make some tweaks to your estate plan. What sort of problems, and let me ask this to both of you, do you see clients run into if they don't have an estate plan? Isabel, what do you see? Well, I mean, I think that there's so many things that, that, right, that's just rife with lots and lots and lots of potential problems. If you don't have an estate plan, you know, you pass away without, let's say, a will or legal documents, you pass away intestate. Now you're leaving it up to the courts to decide who's going to get your money. I had a, um, I have two stories that I'll tell you about um, clients recently that things that happened, and one one of which was an unmarried partner who passed away and uh, had been with their partner for 20 plus years and passed away. It wasn't 100% unexpected, but it was pretty sudden. And um, there was no will. There's no documents. There's no nothing. And for her trying to figure out what, you know, was going on with his money and his bank accounts and his and his property and real estate, I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. And, you know, I told her at this point, if you're not on anything, if you're not titled or you're not, you know, there's no legal documents, there's no will naming you because you're not married, essentially, you know, the siblings, you're going to have to talk to the siblings because it's it's a next of kin situation in most states. So, you know, not having an estate plan or not leaving those detailed legal instructions, you are potentially creating a lot of, of heartbreak for someone or so yeah. or many people. And I have an, I had another situation recently. And to Aaron's point, Aaron mentioned that, you know, you really need to make sure that the person you're working with is an estate attorney, somebody who specializes in this in this area, right? I had a client with a, a fairly significant estate who was working on estate planning, had had some medical issues, and went to get a will and documents written. I had suggested you really need to get a trust, et cetera, and went to an attorney who specialized in real estate, did not specialize in, in estate planning per se, but was going to write a will and legal documents and was going to include a trust as part of the will. So this is called a testamentary trust when your, your will creates a trust. And we just kind of talked through afterwards. He, he said to me, you know, is this a good idea? Or, you know, can you read over this document and let me know? And I went back through our uh, estate planning team and had them read it through. And, and we had a conference call with this client and kind of talked through what are the ins and outs and potential pitfalls of doing it this way, of not having the trust now, but having the trust later. And there was so many issues, right? It was potentially probate. You know, you still have probate. You have probate fees. You've got all of these complexities of refiling and retitling things later. So it was like, you save time and money maybe now by not having all of the documents written today, but you just create all of those problems later for your beneficiaries and for your heirs. So it was, you know, in these two scenarios, it was just a really, they've, they've happened fairly recently and they've really, you know, underlined yet again why it is so important to make those plans early because ultimately you just never know what's going to happen. Well, and to make the right plans. We were talking earlier in the show about how even when there is an estate plan in place, it can fracture families. It can really tear people apart. Erin, I know that Edelman Financial Engines recently conducted a big study called Everyday Wealth in America, and it had some really 
eye-opening information about why transferring wealth is such a big source of conflict. Death does not bring out the best in people. Um, Certainly death (laughs) does not bring out the best in people. Um, But our everyday wealth in America study was interesting. Um, And it pointed out that, you know, many individuals are concerned about the transfer of wealth that is going to create conflict within their family. And the reasons that that they're thinking this way are are the ones that we would, that we would all think about, right? It's that conflict with who's going to be in charge and whether that is who's going to be making medical decisions for mom, who is going to be making financial decisions for mom if she's not able to, who's going to be in charge of mom's estate, how is the money being divided? then how is the stuff being divided? Whether those are, are valuables, you know, whether that is you know, mom's jewelry and grandma's silver, or it's those sentimental items. Um, you know, who's getting the cow creamer collection? There's not a monetary value, but there's a sentimental value. And one of the best ways to stave off those conflicts and those future fights is by having a comprehensive estate plan. If you put it down in writing, You've stated what your wishes are. And so kids might be a little bent out of shape, but you're not going to have those fights. But once you've got the plan, you do have to talk about it, right? I mean, my mother's been so clear that everything is split equally, that it will be a surprise to precisely no one what is going to happen. I think talking about it is really important. So let's say you have four kids and one of those children is going to be your healthcare representative and your attorney, in fact. Certainly you want to let that person know that if something happens to you, they're going to be in charge. They really need to know that. But it can also be beneficial to tell the other kids as well. Because again, you're going to stave off those fights. So you sit down, you talk to the four kids and say, hey, look, if anything happens to me, your sister's in charge. Your sister's in charge of healthcare. Your sister's in charge of finances. That's how it's going to be. You guys don't have to worry about it because I've already made the decision for you. And I've heard you say that beneficiaries don't necessarily need to know the dollar values behind the estate plan, but they really do need to understand your why. Absolutely. Because again, you want to stave off those fights. And so, you know, you have four kids, you want to leave everything equally to those four kids. That's wonderful. But you might have a situation where, you know, you want to leave additional funds to child number three. Maybe child number three has a disability and is simply going to need more funds during his lifetime. Maybe child number three didn't go to college and grad school. The other three children, mom and dad paid for college, grad school, law school, med school, Um, that child didn't. And so mom and dad want to try to uh, equalize that child a little bit, but state the reasons. And if you're not so comfortable maybe stating the reasons while you're alive, you can even leave a letter to your family when you're gone. Put in the important documents file and say, look, it's not an even split and here's the reason. And that way, the kids don't have to guess about what that reason was because they know. But if you can have those conversations while you're alive, it just, it, it staves off that conflict. Can I chime in here also? Because I think, so the estate plan is immensely important, but there are other things that may be really important to think about as well, just as kind of part of thinking about your final planning. And I always say, like, you can't write down too many things. You can't give enough detail. When my grandmother passed away, this is 20 years ago now, um, 
I mean, she wrote her own obituary, okay? She left detailed instructions as to what kind of flower she wanted at her funeral, as to what kind of food she wanted. Now, granted, she's like a little bit of a control freak, right? Or she was. So it was all in keeping with her personality, right? We loved it. But it, it really, it was such a gift to me. I was the one in charge of planning the you know funeral and, and everything else awake. And just knowing that I was following through on her wishes, right? The very specifics of it, down to the types of flowers that she wanted, That was very fulfilling for me. It was very helpful, and it was a gesture of love on her part to do that. And so I would just say that, you know, in addition to the estate plan, like, if you think your children are going to fight over one cookie jar that's not written down in the estate plan, but it has a sentimental or emotional value for them— write it down or include it, you know, have it somewhere in your, you know, with your estate plan in a a book or a binder or folder where you've got all your info. So, you know, be detailed with it. I totally agree. When my stepfather passed away last year, he left an entire binder. He called it his letter of instruction and suggestion because there were many suggestions and they're about, you know, how we should proceed. But he told us exactly where to order the food for the Shiva you know, do this, order these trays from the Shiva and don't skimp because people are going to show up and they're going to be hungry. And and he was absolutely right. Erin, do you create estate plans at EdelmanFinancialEngines.com? So we do not draft estate planning documents here at Edelman Financial Engines, but we can help you gear up for that first meeting with your estate planning attorney. So Very often, Isabel and I, we spend time with clients asking what their wealth transfer goals are, talking through what estate administration might look like, talking through some of the decisions that need to be made in any estate plan. Um, For example, you know, who's going to be in charge of healthcare decisions? Who's going to be in charge of financial decisions? Who's going to be your executor? And we can talk through with clients what their general wealth transfer plan might look like. Uh, Do they want to leave everything to their children in equal shares? Would they like a carve-out for charity or a carve-out for grandchildren? Or would they like to leave an unequal distribution? And the idea is that then when you do meet with your estate planning attorney, uh, that you have a roadmap and you are 50% of the way there by having that conversation with us first. Erin, thank you so much for being here today and, and talking us through these very gnarly issues. Oh, Gina, it was my pleasure. And Isabel, always great to have you here. Great to be back. If you've got a question for a financial planner on estate planning or taxes, retirement income, really anything, just send it to us. Go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down, look for the blue ask a question button, click on it, type in your info and send it my way. And before we go, I did just want to share one other stat with you from the caring.com 2023 wills survey. An interesting contrast they found is that two out of three people believe you should have a will by age 55 or sooner, but less than half of people 55 or older actually have one. The number one reason that they don't, procrastination. Don't put your wealth, don't put your legacy at risk over something that is this relatively quick and easy and painless. If you call Edelman Financial Engines today, you can talk with a planner and let them 
help you get started on protecting your wealth and talking through all of these things. That's it for this show. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks so much and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.